sermon, however, is not from our red passage. It is from Psalm 75, which we sang. And uh, you will remember that we are moving through the book of Daniel. We have gotten up to chapter 11, and I certainly do intend to finish the book. But chapter 11 is the most detailed prophecy in the whole book. And quite frankly, I've been sick all week. And so taking on that this morning, I realized I'm not going to do that well. So you get what I got. I've been focusing this week on Psalm 75. By the time I had the opportunity to put a message together, that's what I had. So you get that. We're looking at Psalm 75. And Psalm 75 is a short passage of Scripture, uh, but very potent, and a song that speaks to our moment very well. In the Geneva Study Bible, they always put up kind of an outline of a Bible chapter at the beginning of the book, and in this particular psalm, they do a fantastic job of summarizing what we just sang. So I'm going to have Carmen put that up there. That is the outline that uh, they say concerning this psalm. Verse 1, the faithful do praise the name of the Lord. The psalm starts with that. It's praise. Why do they praise him? Well, verse 2 has, who shall come to judge at the time appointed? So God is the judge. He is going to come judge the earth. We're praising him for that. Verse 8, when the wicked shall be put to confusion and drink the cup of his wrath. That's what happens when God judges. And then in verse 10, their pride shall be abated and the righteous shall be exalted to honor. So if you want to know as an overview of what the psalm is teaching, I can't do any better than what they did. They actually outline what we just sang. This is a psalm about good and evil. And it pictures the world being divided into good and evil. The scriptures do that. Now, whenever we do that, whenever we present the world in white or black terms, the, uh, the listeners on the outside of the church, and many times from the inside, turn to us and say, no, no, you, you, you've got it far too simplistic. The world is not black and white. The world is actually many, many shades of gray. There is great nuance in the world. Uh, nothing is perfectly white. Nothing is perfectly black. Somebody ought to tell God that. Because when the Spirit of God moves on a prophet of God, in this case a psalmist who's writing prophetically, he doesn't write in those terms. He writes about wickedness, and he writes about the good God. And God is perfectly righteous, and there are absolutely wicked people, and this psalm is about this. It's about the struggle between good and evil, and it's pretty black and white, and the people of God rejoice in God because he is going to judge evil. Uh, evil is going to get its just desserts. There is a a cup of wine in God's hand that he's going to pour out on the wicked of the earth, and they're going to drink it. They're going to drink all of it. God's wrath is going to absolutely satiate them to the end, and God is going to establish 
justice, and righteousness. As an overview, that's what we sang. And that is something to celebrate. But having said that, there is even more meat to be had if we look at the various parts. So that is what we are going to do for the rest of the morning. If you look at verse 1, the psalm is about thankfulness. Thankfulness is emphasized. Uh, I have the wrong passage marked. One second, please. We give thanks to you, O God, says the psalmist. And then he emphasizes it, we give you thanks. When we begin our, our praise of God, we begin with a thankful heart, and everything that comes out of this psalm is rooted in that. You're going to have things that people don't tend to associate with being thankful for. You're going to have God as the judge pouring out his wrath. That's rarely presented from the pulpit as something God's people should be thankful for. But the Bible presents it as something that we give thanks to you, O Lord. We give thanks to you. Everything we're going to say is rooted in thankfulness. A grateful heart. God acts and we respond with gratitude because God is good. But exactly what goodness inspires this psalm? The psalmist begins with with praise and thanksgiving. It is on his heart. What is it that has spoken to him that brings up this this thanksgiving? Well, that is in verse 1. But it's interesting how various translations deal with verse 1. The Geneva Bible says, We will praise thee, O God, we will praise thee, For thy name is near, therefore they will declare thy wondrous works. They seems to refer to other people somewhere out there. Uh, They are praising God, and their praise inspires the psalmist. He hears other people praising God, um, and they join in. The New King James translates it this way. We give thanks to you, O God, we give thanks, for your wondrous works declare that your name is near. So in the New King James, the psalmist sees the fingerprints of God on creation. He can't miss what God has done, the wonderful works that God has created. He walks through the world and he rejoices in the God who made it. The Amplified Translation does verse 1 this way. We give praise and thanks to you, O God. We give praise and thanks. Your wondrous works declare that your name is near, and they who invoke your name rehearse your wonders. So in the Amplified, it actually has both of them and puts them out there. So why are there these two options? Well, in the Hebrew either could be, and they give us two possibilities. In the one, you have the believer 
experiencing God as he goes about life because God has made everything and the believer is able to hear that because God makes him able. It is very similar to Psalm 19, which begins like this. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the world, and their words to the ends of the world. In this passage, there's no question, but the psalmist is saying, The fact that God created the world can't really be missed. Everything in creation testifies to its creator. The heavens, the earth, the way natural law works, all of it shouts. There is a creator, there is a God who is the origin. Uh, You can't miss it. That may be what the psalmist is talking about, although if it is, a detractor might raise his hand and say, You know, I live in the world, and I don't really see the fingerprints of God. I get up every morning, and things happen. And uh, you talk about God being the creator and making everything work, but, um, yeah, I'm not seeing it. The reformer, John Calvin, actually kind of talked to that in his first catechism, which is not a catechism, it's more of a statement of faith than anything else, In history, it's kind of come down to us under the title of instruction in faith. He he says this about creation. We contemplate, therefore, in this universality of things, the immortality of our God, from which immortality has preceded the beginning and origin of all things, his power which has created such a great system and now sustains it. His wisdom, which has composed and rules with such a distinct order, such a great and complex variety of beings and things. His goodness, which has been the reason in itself why all these things have been created and now subsist. His justice, which manifests itself in a marvelous way in the protection of good people and in the retribution of the bad, His mercy, which endures our iniquities with such a great kindliness in order to call us to amendment. What he goes on to is profound. Certainly, all this should abundantly teach us all of such a God as it is necessary to know. So Calvin says, uh, God created it. It all testifies to God. And really, this should tell everybody who God is. Uh, It ought to be sufficient to make people know God. I mean, totally know God. Uh, Certainly, all this should abundantly teach us all of such a God as it is necessary to know if we, in our coarseness, were not blind to such a great light. Yet here we sin not only by blindness, For our perversity is such that when it esteems the works of God, there is nothing that it does not understand in an evil and perverse sense, so that it turns upside down all the heavenly wisdom, which otherwise shines so clearly in those works. Therefore, it is necessary to come to the word of God, where God is very well described. 
So what Calvin says is the universe is shouting God's name everywhere, all the time. And if we weren't drain damaged, which I've said so many times I don't think I could say it the right way, um, we'd hear it. We'd hear everything about God just by walking out our front door. But we are sinful, and that puts blinders on us, and we wander through creation, and we can't see God, and we need something brighter. We need something that will burn those blinders away, and that becomes the written word of God. But that being said, converted people, people whom God has given new life in Jesus Christ, we are not blinded as others. Now, we still suffer. Glory is required for us really to honestly see God as God would have us see him. But we are not like the unconverted spiritually dead. When we get up in the morning and we wander out, God in his mercy has made his presence known to us, and we can hear creation shout, or at least maybe whisper, we see the glories of God in creation, and while the spiritually dead wander into a dark and hopeless world, we do not. That, by itself, is a great reason to say, we give thanks to you, O Lord, we give thanks to you. For your name is near, the heavens declare the glory of God, the firmament declares your handiwork, and we hear about you, and we thank you just for the fact you speak to us. Have you considered the in- incredible advantage you have over the unconverted person? The unconverted person doesn't see God in any way. He gets up in the morning and wanders into a creation that, as far as he is concerned, nobody is overseeing. Uh, will humanity overpopulate itself till we, like rats, turn on one another because we have overused all the resources because no one's steering the ship? Well, maybe. Will a, a comet fall from the heavens and obliterate all life on Earth one day just out of the blue because everything's random? Well, maybe. Um, things going to happen to you that you have no control over and nobody's controlling? Well, maybe, because that's how the world works, right? Not for the believer. God has revealed to us his presence. You experience him. He testifies to his name being everywhere. You wake up in a very different world than they do. And that is something to be incredibly grateful for. That is one option for understanding the verse. The other one is that the psalmist has come into the midst of people who are experiencing God's presence, and in the midst of people who experience God's presence, he does too. There are people proclaiming the glories of God, the wonders of God. Maybe maybe he has wandered into the tabernacle, maybe he has wandered into a gathering of saints that are studying the word, what have you. But there are people who are are talking about the goodness and the greatness of God. And in the context of saints together, the psalmist is able to really experience the presence of God. He gives thanks to God for that. In the Didache, which is the earliest Christian writing, uh, the Didache says that. 
it advises young Christian men, if you want to really experience the presence of God, and I'm paraphrasing a little, but it does say this, if you want to experience the presence of God, go find old saints that are talking about him. And you can't help but experience God, because old saints, with their deep faith, I mean, they're on the line to power. So that's where you'll find him. I don't know that this is an either-or. Because if that's what it means, well, those people who are praising him had to experience his presence somewhere, and the heavens do declare the glory of God. So we kind of have the same answer either way we go. Augustine told a story about his mentor, Ambrose. Uh, Ambrose was a, a bishop, but he was the pastor of a church. And like every church pastor... Uh, he had some people who were far more faithful to church attendance than others, and there was this one guy who had just kind of stopped coming. And so Ambrose, he's a famous guy in history, but Ambrose goes and makes a pastoral call of the guy, and the guy lets him into the house, and they're talking, and Ambrose never says a word to him about the fact that his attendance at the, the assemblies of God have failed. Rather, he kind of shoots the breeze with them. But while they're talking, Ambrose takes a poker, and they've got a fire going. It's, it's, it's a cold season. And Ambrose takes the poker, and he kind of pulls one of the logs out of the fire, rolls it by itself. And as they talk, while the fire continues to burn, the log that has been pulled out of it begins to go cold. And it goes out. As Ambrose is leaving, the man who got the message said, I, I'm sorry, and you will see me on the next Lord's Day. And that's what happened. The psalmist may be rejoicing in the fact that he has believers who praise and celebrate God, and he doesn't burn out because he gathers with the saints, and God makes his power and presence known. Creation or the assembly, actually it's kind of six of one. God speaks in those ways. And either way, we praise you, we thank you, we give you praise uh, because you're God. And as God, uh, you do things. You cause things to happen. In verse 2, God speaks. In verse 1, the psalmist is talking, but it's kind of hard not to miss that uh, our speaker has changed because verse 2 says, When I choose the proper time, I will judge uprightly. The earth and all its inhabitants are dissolved. I set up the pillars firmly. There's not a human being on earth who could utter that statement because that statement says... I keep the world from ending, right? I mean, that's, that's what it says. So if the psalmist is saying, I keep the world from ending, I'm doubting it. In different languages, you have different ways of dealing with quotations. In English, we're very familiar with quotation marks, and sometimes uh, the writer will say, you know, Jim said, but then Bill said, you know, we, we know the rules. In Hebrew, it's a little different. When the voice changes, uh, 
sometimes it's um, you know various aspects of the language, but you kind of have to to tell from context who is talking. And if you don't get that right, you get a very false message. Uh, in in our Old Testament reading, for instance, David said uh, that there was a line there where you had the servant of Mephibosheth talking, but uh, the next line is, Mephibosheth will eat from your table forever and you will be kind to him if it's in the mouth of the servant, but it's not written that way. It's actually written as if the servant was saying, I'm going to do this, and the servant couldn't do it. So the New King James puts in the words, David said, and it's all in italics. It is what David said. The servant couldn't say that. You have to get that from context. Or uh, Psalm 46 is a good example of this. In uh, Psalm 46, in verse 10, we read, uh, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. That comes right after verse 8 and 9. Come behold the works of the Lord who has made desolations in the earth. He makes wars to cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariots in the fire. And then you have be still and know that I'm God. I have heard preachers get up behind the pulpit and say, look, the psalmist said be still and know I'm God. He's talking about you and me. We're God. We just need to realize our godhood. Um, that's pagan. That's not what the psalmist is teaching. There is no place in God's word that ever says you are God. There is an absolute distinction between you and your creator. Uh, if you don't realize the voice has changed in verse 10, you end up with an absolutely new age pagan idea of religion. You are not God. You need to be still and know that God is God, and to uh, highlight that, if you have a New International Version, it adds the words, God says, because it's God saying. You're not God. God is saying, be still and know that I am God. Well, in our psalm, in Psalm 75, the same thing is taking place. God is speaking in verse 2, and he's also speaking in the last verse. He's speaking in verse 10. That God is God is a guarantee that all the air molecules in this room are not going to just randomly bounce to the corner for some reason and we all suffocate. That may seem like a farcical way of talking, but I had a, uh, a professor as a high school student who believed in chaos theory, and it was actually really the logical out working of being an atheist, which he was. He believed that order and law was just illusion, and that anything could happen at any time. And he said, you know, there, there may come a day when people come into this classroom, and we're all laying dead from asphyxiation, because all the air molecules bounced to one corner of the room. You know, it just happened. We all died, and nobody's going to know how it happened. That is a, a terrifying way of viewing the world. But God speaks to the psalmist now, and he says, When the appointed time comes, I judge aright. I step into history, I actually act, and I act for justice, I act for righteousness. It's at a time when the earth is melting. Have you ever felt the earth was melting? 
There, there's, there's times when it just feels like everything is going to pot. I mean, literally, absolutely everything. Your entire world is dissolving. Well, God says that happens. In a fallen world, horrible, terrible things happen, and you would think this will ultimately end in absolute disaster and total destruction, but that's when I'll step in, says God. I will step in when the world is melting and everybody in it is melting. They are totally not able to help themselves, but I will take hold of the time I will judge, I will act, and the world won't melt. It must have seemed like the earth was melting when you had the great bubonic plague in Europe. You had two out of three people in Europe die. And there were all kinds of people wandering the continent shouting, the world is ending. Surely the apocalypse is upon us and the world is melting And there is nothing that can be done about it. Uh, Time is over. If you were in Poland in the Second World War, the world seemed like it was melting. You were being crushed between great forces, and cities were on fire, and people were being caught and hanged. Uh, The world was melting. It seemed like the world would end. But the world has not ended yet. The world will end. We're promised that. But the world will end in God's judgment at his appointed time. The world won't end before that. Even if it seems like everything is melting and you are absolutely being brought to total disarray, God will continue history for his ends till he's done with it. That is one of the great hopes, that is one of the great comforts of knowing that God is God. The God who will judge the world at its end will keep the world around till its appointed end, and God will have his way in history. Not those who would want to run it. There is a Selah here in the psalm, which means stop and really think about what was said. Uh, God's in charge. But there are an awful lot of people who would rather be in charge And they really resent the fact that God thinks he's in charge. Um, What do they need to hear? Well, the psalmist speaks to them in the next couple verses. I said to the boastful, do not deal boastfully. And to the wicked, do not lift up the horn. Do not lift up your horn on high. Do not speak with a stiff neck. For exaltation comes neither from the east, nor from the west, nor from the south, but God is the judge. He puts down one and exalts another. In Bible study this morning, we were looking at one of Solomon's Proverbs, which said, when the law of God is transgressed, when it's no longer the standard of right and wrong, a land ends up with many, many rulers, and that's a bad situation. When you have multiple rulers, uh, everything is decaying. Well, that sounds like right now, and that's what's happening. The law of God has been transgressed. It's no longer the standard of right and wrong. And so you have all sorts of people vying for power, and everything's going to pot. Well, that's what's happening. Solomon's right. Um, But the psalmist turns to those people... And he says, 
you're power hungry and you want to control people and you assume that the tools for controlling people are to be boastful and arrogant and to be wicked. Wickedness is when you're a sinner to the level where you don't mind hurting other people. Not, not all sinners are there. Uh, your next door neighbor who is a nice guy and you can borrow the lawnmower from and he might come over to your backyard barbecue but he doesn't know Jesus. He is a sinner. He is on his way to hell. But honestly, you may get your lawnmower back and he may not hurt you. A wicked person hurts you. Well, the psalmist turns to those who would rule men and says, you assume that to be in control, the, the tools you will use, the, the natural tools, the right ones, are absolute arrogancy and violence. Absolute arrogancy and self-centered coercion. Um, you're wrong about that. There is a God in heaven, and he is watching what has happened, and God will lift up whom he will lift up, and he will put down whom he will put down, what you think are the tools for your victory, that's, that's not why you're ascending. And it isn't why you won't fall. Um, God is a judge. He puts up people, he takes them down. And this is what it means to be God, because this psalm has as its focus the final judgment of the world. And what comes next in the psalm is... But God is judge, he puts down one and exalts another, for in the hand of the Lord there is a cup, and the wine is red, it is fully mixed, and he pours it out. Surely its dregs shall all the wicked of the earth drain and drink down. That symbolism comes up in scripture time and time again for the final judgment. That is God judging the nations, judging all of history, Uh, His wrath will ultimately be poured out in full measure. And if God's going to do that at the last day, do you think God will be the God of deism who decides to step back and just kind of watch everything happen until we get there? To be hands-off, to not really care. The God who will judge every thought, word, and deed of each individual, of nations, of empires, do you really think he won't act in history now? Of course not. God lifts up. God puts down. At the end, he will pour out his wrath. He is a God who moves in history. And as he's moving, God speaks, verse 10, all the horns of the wicked I will also cut off. The horns symbolize their power, their oppressiveness, their their rule. Uh, As time goes on, all the horns of the wicked I will also cut off, but the horns of the righteous shall be exalted. What does that look like? It looks like a prime minister who wants to be a communist dictator who can't deal with a bunch of truckers. That's what it looks like. It looks like uh, the greatest army on earth charging into Russia when God decides to send the worst winter of the 20th century on them, um, they get frustrated because God's hand brings them down in time. It is a shadow of things to come. No, No king, no despot can grab hold of the world and rule it. God is the ruler. 
And so he is going to bring things to judgment even now. We have his promise that no Kim Jong-ul or any other despot will have the final say. God will have the final say. Now, as you know, Jesus has told us all the Psalms are ultimately about him. Well, where is Jesus of Nazareth in this psalm? Well, this psalm has basically given three things to God. God is the preserver of all things. God is, in the end, the destroyer of all things. And God will be the judge of all things, right? I mean, that's, that's what the psalm really has focused on. Well, let's listen to the New Testament's presentation of Jesus of Nazareth. In the book of Colossians, chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, the apostle describes our Lord in these terms. By him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. Now, what does it mean that all things are consisting in him? Well, uh, you know, uh, in science today, there are people looking for what they call the unified field theory, which literally means, why does the universe stay together? If everything is made of atoms, and atoms do their own thing, and they aren't you know, really designed to adhere per se, why is it we don't all just disintegrate? Why, why does matter stay together rather than going out? Well, what Paul said is, you know the reason why the universe stays in existence and you don't melt immediately? It's because the Lord Jesus Christ is causing all things to stick together. When God shall will, everything can melt, but all things in Christ subsist. And Paul is not the only one to testify to this. The writer to the Hebrews begins his epistle with the same words. In verse 1 through 3 we read, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in the past time to the fathers by the prophets, but has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's exactly the same thing. He is holding everything together by the word of his power. The universe turns to Jesus Christ and says, can I melt? And Jesus says, no. And it doesn't. Jesus is Lord. He is preserving everything. Who will be the destroyer? We tend to think of Jesus of Nazareth as Jesus meek and mild, but listen to the opening words of 2 Thessalonians Paul is writing to a persecuted church, and we take up the the narrative at verse 6. It is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you, and to give you who are troubled rest with us when 
the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe because our testimony among you was believed. There is a cup in God's hand, a cup of wrath. He will pour it out. Who is pouring out the wrath here? It is the Lord Jesus Christ. He has been given authority over everything in heaven and in earth. Psalm 75 says God will destroy all things one day. He does it through Jesus Christ, who is God the Son. Or what about the judgment? When Jesus describes the judgment in Matthew 25, this is what he says. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he shall sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another as the shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will, say, will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. But jumping to verse 41, Then he will also say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you accursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. That's the judgment day. God will judge, says Psalm 75. Matthew says, Jesus will judge. And they're not in conflict. Because Jesus is God. He is God the Son. Everything you're reading about in Psalm 75, God will be the king over the despots. He will not suffer them to succeed. God will rule. He will hold the universe in his hand for his purposes. He will set the end. He will protect the righteous. This is all our Lord Jesus Christ. It is the Christian who can rest in the comfort of Psalm 75, knowing even if the world feels like it's melting, even if he feels like it's melting, Jesus will be Lord. That is an amazing blessing. And what can the church say, but we give thanks to you, O Lord, we give thanks to you.